0: CHAPTER NINE OF SYRIA, THE DESERT, AND THE SEAN. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY DANIELLE WOLF. SYRIA, THE DESERT, AND THE Sown BY GERTRUDE BELL, CHAPTER NINE. WE LEFT NEXT DAY AT AN EARLY HOUR, BUT THE PEOPLE OF HOMES GOT UP TO SEE US OFF. NOTHING save THE DETERMINATION TO AFFORD THEM NO MORE AMUSEMENT THAN I COULD HELP kept me outwardly calm. In a quarter of an hour we had passed beyond the Tripoli gate and the Roman brickwork, and beyond the range of vision of the furthest sighted of the little boys. The peaceful beauty of the morning invaded our senses, and I turned to make the acquaintance of the companions with whom the Ka'amakam had provided me. They were four in number, and two of them were free and two were bound. The first two were Kurdish Zapates. One was charged to show me the way to ad And the other to guard over the second pair of my fellow travelers, a couple of prisoners who had been on the Ka'amakam's hands for some days past, waiting until he could find a suitable opportunity, such as that afforded by my journey, to send them to the fortress in the Jebel Nasseria, and so to the great prison at Tripoli. They were clad, poor wretches, in ragged cotton clothes and handcuffed together. As they trudged along bravely through dust and mud, I pro-offered a word of sympathy, to which they replied that they hoped God might prolong my life. But as for them, it was the will of their lord, the sultan, that they should tramp in chains. One of the Kurds interrupted with the explanation. They are deserters from the sultan's army. May God reward them according to their deeds. Moreover, they are Ismailis from Semalia, and they worship a strange god who lives in the land of Hind. And some say she is a woman, and for that reason they worship her and every year she sends an embassy to this country to collect the money that is due to her, and even the poorest of the Ismailis provide her with a few piastres. and yet they declare that they are Muslims. Who knows what they believe? Speak, O cutter, and tell us what you believe. The prisoner thus addressed replied doggedly, We are Muslims, but the soldier's words have given me a clue which I was able to follow up when the luckless pair crept close to my horse's side and whispered, lady, lady. Have you journeyed to the land of Hind? Yes, said I. May God make it yes upon you. Have you heard there of a great king called King Mohammed? Again, I was able to reply in the affirmative, and even to add that I myself knew him and had conversed with him, for their King Mohammed was no other than my fellow subject, the Aga Khan, and the religion of the prisoners boasted a respectable antiquity, having been founded by him whom we call the old man of the mountain. They were the humble representatives of the dreaded, and probably maligned, sect of the assassins. Cutter caught my stirrup with its free hand, and said eagerly, Is he not a great king? But I answered cautiously, for though the Aga Khan is something of a great king in the modern sense, that is to say he is exceedingly wealthy, it would have been difficult to explain to his disciples exactly what the polished, well-bred man of the world was like, whom I had last met at a London dinner party and who had given me the Marlborough Club as his address. Not that these things, if they could have understood them, would have shocked them. The Aga Khan is a law unto himself, and if he chose to indulge in far greater excesses than dinner parties, his actions would be sanctified by the mere fact that they were his. His father used to give letters of introduction to the angel Gabriel in order to secure for his clients a good place in paradise. The son, with his English education and his familiarity with European thought, has refrained from exercising this privilege, though he has not ceased to hold, in the opinion of his followers, the keys of heaven. They show their belief in him in a substantial manner by subscribing, in various parts of Asia and Africa, a handsome income that runs yearly into tens of thousands. We rode for about an hour through gardens, meeting bands of low-caste Arabs jogging into homes on their donkeys with milk and curds for the market, and then we came to the plain beyond the Arontes, which is the home of these Arabs. The plain had a familiar air. It was not dissimilar from the country in the Druze hills, and like the Haruan, it was covered with black volcanic stones. It is a vast quarry for the city of Homs. All the stones that are used for building are brought from beyond the river, packed on donkeys. They are worth a metallic in the town. Now, a metallic is a coin too small to possess a European counterpart. And a man with a good team can earn up to 10 piastres a day. In the spring, the only Arabs who camp in the War Hums, the stony plain of Homs, are a despised race that caters for the needs of the city. For, mark you, no Bedouin who respected himself would earn a livelihood by selling curds or by any other means except battle. But in the summer, the big tribes, such as the Hassanah, settle there for a few months, and after the harvest, certain of the Anza, who feed their camels upon the stubble, These great folk are much like salmon in a trout stream coming in from the open sea and bullying the lesser fry. When we passed in March, there was a good deal of standing water in the plain and grass and flowers grew between the stones. And as we journeyed westward, over ground that rose gradually toward the hills, we came into country that was like an exquisite garden of flowers. Pale blue hyacinths lifted their clustered bells above the tufa blocks, irises and red anemones and a yellow hawk seed and a beautiful purple hellbore dotted the grass. All the bounties of the Syrian spring were scattered on that day beneath our happy feet. For the first five hours we followed the carriage road that leads to Tripoli, passing the Khan that marks the final stage before the town of Homs, and the boundary line between the vilayets of Damascus and Beirut. Then we turned to the right and entered a bridle path that lay over a land of rolling grass, partly cultivated and fuller of flowers than the edges of the road had been. The anemones were of every shade of white and purple, small blue irises clustered by the path, and yellow crocuses by the banks of the stream. In the eyes of one who had recently crossed southern Syria, the grass was even more admirable than the flowers. The highest summits of the Jebel Nasseria are clad with a verdure that no fertile slope in Samaria or Judea can boast. The path mounted a little ridge and dropped down to a Kurdish village, half Arab tent and half mug built wall. The inhabitants must have been long in Syria, for they had forgotten their own tongue and spoke nothing but Arabic, though, like the two Zapatia, they spoke with the clipped accent of the Kurd. Beyond the village, a plain some three miles wide, the Baqeya stretched to the foot of the steep buttresses of the Nasiriyah hills, and from the very top of the mountain frowned the great crusader fortress towards which we were going. The sun shone on its turrets, but a black storm was creeping up behind it. We could hear the thunder rumbling in the hills and jagged lightning shot through the clouds behind the castle. The direct road across the Baqeya was impassable for horsemen, owing to the flooded swamps, which were deep enough, said the villagers, to engulf a mule and its load. We turned, therefore, reluctantly to the right and edged round the foot of the hills. Before we had gone far, we met two riders sent out to welcome us by the Ka'amakam of Khalid al-Hussan. And as they joined us, the storm broke and enveloped us in sheets of rain. Splashing through the mud and drenched with rain, we reached the foot of the hills at five o'clock, and here I left my caravan to follow the road, and with one of the Ka'amakam's horsemen, climbed by a steep and narrow bridle path straight up to the hilltop. And so at sunset, we came to the dark tower and rode through a splendid Arab gateway into a vaulted corridor built over a winding stair. It was almost night within. A few loopholes led in the gray dusk from outside and provided the veriest apology for daylight. At intervals, we passed doorways leading into cavernous blackness. The stone steps were shallow and wide, but much broken. The horses stumbled and clanked over them as we rode up and up, turned corner after corner, and passed under gateway after gateway, until the last brought us out into the courtyard in the center of the keep. I felt as though I were riding with some knight of the fairy queen, and half expected to see written over the arches, be bold, be bold, be not too bold but there was no magician in the heart of the castle, nothing but a crowd of villagers craning their necks to see us, and the Ka'amakam smiling and friendly, announcing that he could not think of letting me pitch a camp on such a wet and stormy night, and had prepared a lodging for me in the tower. The Ka'amakam of Khalid al-Hussan is a distinguished man of letters. His name is Abd al-Hamid bin Rafi and his family comes from Egypt, where many of his cousins are still to be found. He lives in the topmost tower of the keep, where he had made ready a guest chamber commodiously fitted with carpets and a divan, a four-post bedstead, and a mahogany wardrobe with looking-glass doors of which the glass had been so splintered in the journey, a camel-back from Tripoli, that it was impossible to see the smallest corner of one's face in it. I was wet through, but the obligations of good society had to be fulfilled, and they demanded that we should sit down on the divan and exchange polite phrases while I drank glasses of weak tea. My host was preoccupied and evidently disinclined for animated conversation, for a good reason, as I subsequently found, but on my replying to his first greeting, he heaved a sigh of relief and exclaimed, Praise be to God, Your Excellency speaks Arabic! We had feared that we should not be able to talk with you, and I had already invited a Syrian lady who knows the English tongue to spend the evening for the purpose of interpreting. We kept up a disjointed chat for an hour, while the damp soaked more and more completely through my coat and skirts, and it was not until long after the mules had arrived, and their packs had been unloaded, that the Ka'amakam rose and took his departure, saying that he would leave me to rest. We had, in fact, made a long day's march. It had taken the muleteers eleven hours to reach Khalid al-Hassan. I had barely had time to change my wet clothes, before a discreet knocking at the inner door announced the presence of the womenfolk. I opened at once and admitted a maid-servant, and the wife of the Ka'amakam, and a genteel lady who greeted me in English of the most florid kind. This last was the Sita al the Christian wife of the government land surveyor, who is also a Christian. She had been educated at a missionary school in Tripoli, and I was not long left in ignorance of the fact that she was an authoress, and that her greatest work was the translation of the last days of Pompeii into Arabic. The Ka'amakam's wife was a young woman with apple cheeks who would have been pretty if she had not been inordinately fat. She was his second wife. He had married her only a month or two before, on the death of his first, the mother of his children. She was so shy that it was some time before she ventured to open her lips in my presence. But the sit carried off the situation with a gushing volubility, both in English and in Arabic, and a cheerful air of emphasizing by her correct demeanor the fervor of her Christianity." She was a pleasant and intelligent woman, and I enjoyed her company considerably more than that of my hostess. The first word that the Ka'anam ventured to utter was, however, a welcome one, for she asked when I would please to dine. I replied with enthusiasm that no hour could be too early for me, and we crossed a muddy courtyard and entered a room in which a bountiful meal had been spread out. Here we were joined by an ancient dame who was presented to me as a friend who has come to gaze upon your excellency and we all sat down to the best of dinners, eaten by one at least of the party with the best of sauces. A thick soup and four enormous dishes of meat and vegetables, topped by a rice pudding, composed the repast. When dinner was over, we returned to my room, a brazier full of charcoal was brought in, together with Hubble bubbles for the ladies, and we settled ourselves to an evening's talk. The old woman refused to sit on the divan, saying that she was more accustomed to the floor, and disposed herself neatly as close as possible to the brazier, holding out her wrinkled hands over the glowing coals. She was clad in black, and her head was covered by a thick white linen cloth, which was bound closely above her brow and enveloped her chin, giving her the air of some aged prioress of a religious order. Outside the turret room the wind howled, the rain beat against the single window, and the talk turned naturally to deeds of horror and such whispered tales of murder and death as must have startled the shadows in that dim room for many and many a century. A terrible domestic tragedy had fallen upon the Kamikam ten days before. His son had been shot by a schoolfellow at Tripoli in some childish quarrel. The women seemed to think it not unusual that a boy's sudden anger should have such consequences. The Kamikam had been summoned by telegraph. He had ridden down the long mountain road with fear clutching at his heart only to find the boy dead and his sorrow had been almost more than he could bear. So said the Sith The ancient crone rocked herself over the brazier and muttered, "'Murder is like the drinking of milk here. God, there is no other but thou.'" A fresh gust of wind swept round the tower, and the Christian women took up the tale. "'This Ka'anum,' said she, nodding her head towards the figure by the brazier, "'knows also what it is to weep. Her son was but now murdered in the mountains by a robber who slew him with his knife.'" They found his body lying stripped by the path. The mother bent anew over the charcoal, and the glow flushed her worn, old face. "'Murder is like the spilling of water,' she groaned. "'Oh, merciful!' It was late when the women left me. One of them offered to pass the night in my room, but I refused politely and firmly. Next day I was wakened by thunder and by hailstones rattling against my shutters. There was nothing for it, but to spend another 24 hours under the comic roof and be thankful that we had a roof to spend them under. I explored the castle from end to end with immense satisfaction to the eternal child that lives in the soul of all of us, and takes more delight in the dungeons and battlements of a fortress than in any other relic of antiquity. Ka'al et Husan is so large that half the population of the village is lodged in the vaulted substructures of the keep, while the garrison occupies the upper towers. The walls of the keep rise from a moat inside the first line of fortifications, the line through which we had passed the night before by the vaulted gallery. The butcher of the castle lodged by the gateway of the inner wall. Every morning he killed a sheep on the threshold, and those who went out stepped across a pool of blood as though some barbaric sacrifice were performed daily at the gate. The keep contained a chapel, now converted into a mosque, and a banquet hall with Gothic windows, the tracery of which was blocked with stones to guard those who dwelt within against the cold. The tower in which I was lodged formed part of the highest of the defenses and rose above three stories of vaults. A narrow passage from it along the top of the wall led into a great and splendid chamber, beyond which was a round tower containing a circular room roofed by a fourfold vault and lighted by pointed windows with rosettes and moldings round the arches. The castle is the Carak of the Knights of Crusader Chronicles. It belonged to the hospitallers, and the grand master of the order made it his residence. The Egyptian Sultan Malik El Dahar took it from them, restored it, and set his exultant inscription over the main gate. It is one of the most perfect of the many fortresses which bear witness to the strange jumble of noble ardor, fanaticism, ambition, and crime that combined to make the history of the Crusades a page whereon the Christian nations cannot look without a blush, nor read without the unwilling pity exacted by vain courage. For to die in a worthless cause is the last extremity of defeat. Carac is closely related to the military architecture of southern France, yet it bears traces of an oriental influence from which the great orders were not immune, though the Templars succumbed to it more completely than the Hospitallers. Like the contemporary Arab fortresses, the walls increased in thickness toward the foot to form a sloping bastion of solid masonry which protected them against the attacks of sappers but the rounded towers with their great projection from the line of the wall were wholly french in character the crusaders are said to have found a castle on the hilltop and taken it from the muslims but i saw no traces of earlier work than theirs parts of the present structure are later than their time as for instance a big building by the inner moat on the walls of which were carved lions, not unlike the Seljuk lion. After lunch, I waded down the muddy hill to the village, and called on the Sith Farida and her husband. There were another pair of Christians present, the man being the Sahib al Sunduk, which I took to be a kind of treasurer. The two men talked of the condition of the Syrian poor. No one, said the land surveyor, died of hunger, and he proceeded to draw up the yearly budget of the average peasant. The poorest of the Farahin may earn from 1,000 to 1,500 piastres a year, seven pounds to 11 pounds. But he has no need of money except to pay the capitation tax and to buy himself a substitute for military service. Meat is an unknown luxury. A cask of semen, rancid butter, costs eight shillings or 10 shillings at most. It helps to make the burgle and other grains palatable, and it lasts several months. If the grain and the semen run low, The peasant has only to go out into the mountains or into the open country, which is no man's land, and gather edible leaves or grub up roots. He builds his house with his own hands, there are no fittings or furniture in it, and the ground on which it stands costs nothing. As for clothing, what does he need? A couple of linen shirts, a woolen cloak every two or three years, and a cotton kerchief for the head. The old and the sick are seldom left uncared for, their families look after them if they have families and if they are without relations, they can always make a livelihood by begging, for no one in the East refuses to give something when he is asked, though the poor can seldom give money. Few of the Fellahin own land of their own. They work for hire on the estates of richer men. The chief landowners round Khalid al are the family of the Daanadisha, who come from Tripoli. Until quite recently, the government did not occupy the castle. It belongs to the family of the Zabia who have owned it for 200 years, and still live in some rooms on the outer wall. The treasurer broke in here and said that even the Muslim population hated the Ottoman government and would infinitely rather be ruled by a foreigner, what though he were an infidel, preferably by the English, because the prosperity of Egypt had made so deep an impression on the Syrian minds. That evening the Ka'amakam sent me a message asking whether I would choose to dine alone, or whether I would honor him and his wife, and I begged to be allowed to take the latter alternative. In spite of a desire, touchingly evident, to be a good host, he was sad and silent during the earlier stages of the dinner, until he hit upon a subject that drew him from the memory of his sorrow. The mighty dead came out to help us with words upon their lips that have lifted the failing hearts of generations of mankind. The Ka'amakam was well acquainted with Arabic literature. He knew the poets of the ignorance by heart, and when he found that I had a scanty knowledge of them, and a great love for them, he quoted couplet after couplet but his own tastes lay with more modern singers. The 10th century Mutanabe was evidently one of his favorite authors. Some of the old fire still smolders in Mutanabe's verse. It burnt again as the Khan recited the famous ode in which the poet puts from him the joys of youth. Off have I longed for age to still the tumult in my brain, and why should I repine when my prayer is fulfilled? We have renounced desire save for the spear points, Neither do we dally except with them. The most exalted seat in the world is the saddle of a swift horse, and the best companion for all time is a book. Your Excellency, concluded the Kamakam, must surely hold that couplet in esteem. When we returned to the guest chamber, he asked whether he should not read his latest poem, composed at the request of the students of the American College of Beirut, the most renowned institution of its kind in Syria, to commemorate an anniversary they were about to celebrate. He produced first the student's letter, which was couched in flattering terms, and then his sheets of manuscript, and declaimed his verses with the fine emphasis of the Oriental reciter, pausing from time to time to explain the full meaning of a metaphor, or to give an illustration to some difficult couplet. His subject was the praise of learning, but he ended, inconsequently, with a fulsome panegyric on the sultan, a passage of which he was immensely proud. As far as I could judge, it was not very great poetry, but what of that? There is no solace in misfortune like authorship, and for a short hour the Ka'amakam forgot his grief and entered into regions where there is neither death nor lamentation. I offered him sympathy and praise at suitable points and could have laughed to find myself talking the same agreeable rubbish in Arabic that we all talk so often in English. I might have been sitting in a London drawing-room, instead of between the bare walls of a crusader tower and the world is, after all, made of the one stuff throughout. It was still raining on the following morning, and I had dressed and breakfasted in the lowest spirits, when of a sudden someone waved a magic wand, the clouds were cleared away, and we set off at half-past seven in exquisite sunshine. At the bottom of the steep hill on which the castle stands, there lies in an olive grove a Greek monastery. When I reached it, I got off my horse and went in as was meet to salute the abbot, and behold, he was an old acquaintance whom I had met at the monastery of Malua five years earlier on my return from Palmyra. There were great rejoicings at this fortunate coincidence, and much jam and water and coffee were consumed in the celebration of it. The monastery has been rebuilt, except for a crypt-like chapel, which they say is 1,200 years old. The vault is supported by two pairs of marble columns, broken off below the capital. And returned into the wall, a scheme more curious than attractive. The capitals are in the form of lily heads of a Byzantine type. By the altar screen, a good piece of modern wood carving, there are some very beautiful Persian tiles. In the western wall of the monastery, I was shown a door so narrow between the jambs that it is scarcely possible to squeeze through them, impossible, said the monks, for anyone except he be pure of heart. I did not risk my reputation by attempting to force the passage. We rode on through the shallow wooded valleys full of flowers. The fruit trees were coming into blossom and the honeysuckle into leaf. And by a tiny graveyard under some budding oaks, we stopped to lunch. Before us lay the crucial point of our day's march. We could see the keep of Safita Castle on the opposite hill, but there was a swollen river between. The bridge had been swept away and reports said that the ford was impassable. When we reached the banks of the Abrash, we saw the river rushing down its wide channel an unbroken body of swirling water through which no loaded mule could pass. We rode near two hours downstream and were barely in time with the second bridge, the Jisser Awad, which was in the last stage of decrepitude, the middle arch just holding together. The hills on the opposite bank were covered with a low scrub out of which the lovely iris stylosa lifted its blue petals and the scene was further enlivened by a continuous procession of white-robed noceris making their way down to the bridge. I had a Kurdish Zapata with me, Abd al-Mujid, who knew the mountains well and the inhabitants of them. Though he was a Mohammedan, he had no feelings against the Nosiris, whom he had always found to be a harmless folk, and everyone greeted him with a friendly salutation as we passed. He told me that the white-robed companies were going to the funeral feast of a great sheikh, much renowned for piety, who had died a week ago. The feast on such occasions is held two days after the funeral, and when the guests have eaten of the meats, Each man, according to his ability, pays tribute to the family of the dead, the sums varying from one lira upwards to five or six. To have a reputation for holiness in the Jebel Nasseria is as good as a life insurance with us. Owing to our long circuit, we did not reach Safita till four. I refused the hospitality of the commandant and pitched my tents on a ridge outside the village. The keep, which we had seen from afar, is all that remains of the white castle of the Knights Templars. It stands on the top of the hill with the village clustered at its foot, and from its summit are visible the Mediterranean and the northern parts of the Phoenician coast. I saw a Phoenician coin among the antiquities offered me for sale, and the small bronze figure of a Phoenician god, Safita, was probably an inland stronghold of the merchant nation. The keep was a skillful architectural surprise. It contained not the vaulted hall or refectory that might have been expected, but a great church which had thus occupied the very heart of the fortress. A service was being held when we entered, and all the people were at their prayers, in a red glow of sunset that came through the western doors. The inhabitants of Sapita are most of them Christians, and many speak English with a strong American accent, picked up while they were making their small fortunes in the States. Besides the accent, they had acquired a familiarity of address that did not please me, and lost some of the good manners to which they had been born. Abed al-Majid, the smart, non-commissioned officer, accompanied me through the town, saved me from the clutches of the Americanized Christians, twirled his fierce military mustaches at the little boys who thought to run after us, and followed their retreat with extracts from the finest vocabulary of objuration that I have been privileged to hear. Late in the evening, two visitors were announced, who turned out to be the zabit, commandant, and another official sent by the Ka'amakam of Drukish to welcome me and bring me down to his village. We three rode off together in the early morning with a couple of soldiers behind us by a winding path through the hills, and after two hours we came to a valley full of olive groves, with the village of Drekish on the slopes above them. At the first clump of olive trees we found three worthies in frock coats and tarbushes waiting to receive us. They mounted their horses when we approached and fell into the procession, which was further swelled as we ascended the village street by other notables on horseback till it reached the sum total of thirteen. The Ka'amakam met us at the door of his house, frock coated and ceremonious, and led me into his audience room where we drank coffee. By this time the company consisted of some thirty persons of importance. When the official reception was over, my host took me into his private house and introduced me to his wife, a charming Damascene lady, and we had a short conversation, during which I made his better acquaintance. Rizabeg al Abed owes his present position to the fact that he is cousin to Izit Pasha, for there is not one of that great man's family, but he is at least Kaamakam. Rizabeg might have climbed the official ladder unaided. He is a man of exceptionally pleasant manners, amply endowed with the acute intelligence of the Syrian. The family to which he and Izzit belong is of Arab origin. The members of it claim to be descended from the noble tribe of the Muwali, who were kin to Harid al-Rashid, and when you meet Izit Pasha, it is as well to congratulate him on his relationship with that caliph, though he knows, and he knows also that you know, that the Mawali repudiate his claims with scorn, and count him among the descendants of their slaves, as his name, Abed, slave, may show. Slaves or freemen, the members of the Abid house have climbed so cleverly that they have set their feet upon the neck of Turkey, and will remain in that precarious position until Izzet falls from favor. Rizabeg pulled a grave face when I alluded to his high connection, and observed that power, such as that enjoyed by his family, was a serious matter, and how gladly would he retire into a less prominent position than that of Ka'amakam. Who knew but that the Pasha too would not wish to exchange the pleasures of Constantinople for a humbler and a safer sphere, a supposition that I can readily believe to be well-grounded, since is it, if rumor speaks the truth, has got all that a man can reasonably expect from the years during which he has enjoyed the royal condescension. I assured the Ka'amakam that I should make a point of paying my respects to the Pasha when I reached Constantinople, a project that I ultimately carried out, with such success that I may now reckon myself, on Isit's own authority, as one of those who will enjoy his lifelong friendship. By this time lunch was ready, and the Ka'am having retired, the other guests were admitted to the number of four, the Zabit, the kadi, and two others. It was a copious, an excellent, and an entertaining meal. The conversation flowed merrily round the table, prompted and encouraged by the kamakam, who handled one subject after the other with the polished ease of a man of the world. As he talked, I had reason to observe once more how fine and subtle a tongue is modern Syrian Arabic when used by a man of education. The Kaadi's speech was hampered by his having a reputation for learning to uphold which obliged him to confine himself to the dead language of the Quran. As I took my leave, the Ka'amakam explained that for the night I was still to be his guest. He had learnt, said he, that I wished to camp at the ruined temple of Hassan al-Sulman and had dispatched my caravan thither under the escort of a Zapata, and sent up servants and provisions together with one of his cousins to see to my entertainment. I was to take the Zabat with me and rob Effendi al-Khalil, another of the luncheon party, and he hoped that I should be satisfied. I thanked him profusely for his kindness, and declared that I should have known his Arab birth by his generous hospitality. Our path mounted to the top of the Nasseria hills, and followed along the crests, a rocky and beautiful track. The hills were extremely steep, and bare of all but grass and flowers, except that here and there, on the highest summits, there was a group of big oaks, with a white-domed Nasseri mazar shining in through their bare boughs. The Nasaris have neither mosque nor church, but on every mountaintop they build a shrine that marks a burial ground. These high throned dead, though they have left the world of men, have not ceased from their good offices, for they are the protectors of the trees rooted among their bones, trees which, alone among their kind, are allowed to grow untouched. Hussein al-Suleiman lies at the head of a valley high up in the mountains. A clear spring breaks from under its walls and flows, found a natural platform of green turf, on which we pitched our tents. The hills rise in an amphitheatre behind the temple, the valley drops below it, and the gods to whom it was dedicated, enjoy in joy and solitude, the ruined loveliness of their shrine. The walls round the temenos are overgrown with ivy, and violets bloom in the crevices. Four doorways lead into the court, in the center of which stand the ruins of the temple, while a little to the south of the cella are the foundations of an altar bearing, in fine Greek letters, a dedication that recounts how a centurion called Decimus of the Flavian Legion, with his two sons and his daughter, raised an altar of brass to the god of Betocheche and placed it upon a platform of masonry in the year 444. The date is of the Seleucid era and corresponds to A.D. 132. It is regrettable that Decimus did not see fit to mention the name of the god, which remains undetermined in all the inscriptions. The northern gateway is a triple door lying opposite to a second rectangular enclosure, which contains a small temple in Antis at the southeast corner, and the apse of a sanctuary in the northern wall. This last sheltered perhaps the statue of the unknown god, for there are steps leading up to it, and the bases of columns on either side. As at Baalbek, the Christians sanctified the spot by the building of a church, which lay across the second enclosure at right angles to the northern sanctuary. The masonry of the outer walls of both courts is very massive, the stones being sometimes six or eight feet long. The decoration is much more austere than that of Baalbek, but certain details so intimately recall the latter that I am tempted to conjecture that the same architect may have been employed at both places, and that it was he who cut on the underside of the architraves of Badokecha, the eagles and cherubs that he had used to adorn the architrave of the Temple of Jupiter. The peasants say that there are deep vaults below both temple and court. The site must be well worthy of careful excavation, though no additional knowledge will enhance the beauty of the great shrine in the hills. The kamakam had not fallen short of his word. Holocausts of sheep and hens had been offered up for us, and after my friends and I had feasted, the soldiers and the muleteers made merry in their turn. The campfires blazed brightly in the clear, sharp morning air. The sky was alive with stars, the brook gurgled over the stones, and the rest was silence, for Kurt was lost. Somewhere among the hills he had strayed away, and he was gone never to return. I mourned his loss, but slept the more peacefully for it ever after. All my friends and all the soldiers rode with us the next day to the frontier of the district of Drekish, and there left us after having hounded a reluctant Nasari out of his house at Ain and bidden him help the Zapata who accompanied us to find the extraordinarily rocky path to Masyad. After they had gone, I summoned Mikhail and asked him what he had thought of our day's entertainment. He gave the Arabic equivalent for a sniff and said, Doubtless your excellency thinks that you were the guest of the Ka'amikam. I will tell you of whom you were the guest. You saw those fellaheen of the Noseria, the miserable ones, who sold you antikas at the ruins this morning? They were your hosts. Everything you had was taken from them without return. They gathered the wood for the fires, the hens were theirs, the eggs were theirs, the lambs were from their flocks. When you refused to take more, saying, I have enough, the soldiers seized yet another lamb and carried it off with them. And the only payment the fellahin received were the medaliks you gave them for their old money. But if you will listen to me, added Mikhail, inconsequently, you shall travel through the land of Anatolia, and never take a quarter of the mejideh from your purse. From Ka'amakam to Ka'amakam you shall go, and everywhere they shall offer you hospitality. That sort does not look for payment. They wish your excellency to say a good word for them when you come to Constantinople. You shall sleep in their houses and eat at their tables as it was when I traveled with Sachs. But if I were to tell all that happened when Mikhail traveled with Mark Sykes, I should never get to Masayid. The day was rendered memorable by the exceptional difficulty of the paths and by the beauty of the flowers. On the hilltops grew the alpine cyclamen, crocuses, yellow, white, and purple, and whole slopes of white primroses, lower down irises, narcissus, black and green orchids, purple orchids, and the blue many-petaled anemone, in a boskage of myrtle. When we reached the foot of the steepest slopes, I sent the unfortunate Nosari home with a tip, which was a great deal more than he expected to get out of an adventure that had begun with a command from the soldiery. At three, we reached Messayed and camped at the foot of the castle. Now, Messayed was a disappointment. There is indeed a great castle, but, as far as I could judge, it is of Arab workmanship, and the walls round the town are Arab also. A Roman road from Hama passed through Masayed, and there must be traces of Roman settlement in the town, but I saw none. I heard of a castle at Abu Qesh at the top of the hills, but it was said to be like Masayyad, only smaller, and I did not go up to it. The castle of Masayyad had an outer wall and an inner keep reached by a vaulted passage like that of Kaul at The old keep is almost destroyed and has been replaced by jerry-built halls and chambers erected by the Ismailis some hundreds of years ago when they held the place. So I was told by an old man called the Amir Mustafa Milhem, who belonged to the sect and served me as guide. He also said that his family had inhabited the castle for seven or eight hundred years, but possibly he lied, though it is true that the Ismailis have held it as long. Built into the outer gateways are certain capitals and columns that must have been taken from Byzantine structures. There are some old Arabic inscriptions inside the second gate, which record the names of the builders of that part of the fortifications, but they are much broken. I was told afterwards that I ought to have visited a place called Der El sleb where there are two churches and a small castle. It is not marked in the map, and I heard nothing of it until I had left it far behind. I saw bits of the Rasov, the Roman road, as I traveled next day to Hama. At the bridge over the river Sarut, Four and a half hours from Masyid, there is a curious mound faced to the very top with a rough wall of huge stones. Mikhail found a Roman coin in the furrows of the field at the foot of it. From the river, we had two and a half hours of tedious travel that were much lightened by the presence of a charming old Turk, a telegraph official, who joined us at the bridge and told me his story as we rode. Effendim, the home of my family is near Sofia. Effendim, you know the place? Mashallah, it is a pleasant land. Where I lived, it was covered with trees, fruit trees, and pines in the mountains, and rose garden in the plain. Effendim, many of us came here after the war with the Muscovite, for the reason that we would not dwell under any hand but that of the Sultan, and many returned again after they had come. Effendim, for what cause? They would not live in a country without trees. By God they could not endure it. Thus conversing, we reached Tama. End of chapter nine. Recording by Danielle Wolf.